Hello and welcome to Locked In. You're in the dining room studio with Dave. I'm back. I'm almost 100%. Feeling good. Let's talk about some news. Been some pretty interesting stories floating around. Nothing, nothing really sort of biting early in the week. But let's jump in. Chris Scott came out today, had a bit of a comment about the AFL signing a contract with the MCG for the grand final locking it in there until 2057 that's 2057 and he called it a travesty and i actually as people have come out and you know shot him down i actually agree with him in terms of the length of the contract that seems like an extraordinary period of time to lock in the grand final for for one venue and i understand right now there is no other venue that makes sense now the afl generally speaking is not an equal competition for the interstate sides. And I'm, I'm a, I support the Bombers. And you have a look at some of the Victorian teams and their run home over the next eight, nine weeks, eight weeks. Richmond don't leave, don't leave the state. I think they play Marvel and then they play the next six games or seven games at the MCG. Collingwood, Essendon, I think we leave once. Collingwood, I don't think maybe once or not at all. So generally speaking, the AFL is not an equal competition for the states outside of Victoria. So putting all that aside, and Chris Scott is in Geelong, and he doesn't think it's an equal competition. And I tend to agree from that perspective that if you don't play for a Victorian side or coach a Victorian side or support a Victorian side, then you have to bear the brunt of travelling every pretty much every second week. You Unless you finish in the right position on the ladder, you're probably not going to get a home final and you're not going to play the grand final at your home ground. That's just the reality. Now, with all of that being said, there's definitely areas to work on for the AFL to make the competition more equal. But the fact is the grand final is not a game for the fans. And I know that's hard to hear because they're going to get between 95 and 100,000 people at the grand final, and they always will, but it's not a game for the fans. Ticket allocations, they go to sponsors and corporate packages and clubs and players. The ticket allocation for the grand final is just shambled, especially if you're a fan of a team. And I don't know, depending on how this year plays out, if you had two Victorian teams playing off in the grand final, Collingwood and Geelong, any of the big Victorian clubs, there's always going to be a massive story on grand, the lead-up to the grand final about ticket allocations and members, like gold members or platinum members, whatever, tiers, they're going to miss out, and they always will. So the grand final is not really a day for the, for the average supporter. But in terms of locking it in for 40 years, that just seems, that seems slightly crazy. Because you have no idea what the competition in the AFL landscape is going to look like 40 years from now. And to lock that into one ground, it's a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances. But anyway, they've done that. It is what it is. Let's move on. Rising Stars, another one. And this is about the time of year where we start to talk a little bit passionately, especially if you've got a tighter-ish race for the Rising Star. Now, there seem to be four names that are pretty consistent, and I tend to agree. I can't really see anybody outside of those four winning it. can't really see anybody aside from Sam Walsh winning it. But there's certainly – there's now the 
the Sydney stack camp. Uh, I think Connor Rosie's had a great year at Port Adelaide and Nick Blakey's had a really good year in Sydney. So those four players certainly stand out. But I think when you look at Sam Walsh and what he's done, excuse me, over the year so far, how consistent he's been, and then putting the lenses of 18-year-old kid playing as essentially the second midfielder. Yeah, he's in arguably the worst club in the competition, worst list, but I think in just about any club he'd be playing in the midfield consistently. Even teams like Collingwood and GWS, I think he'd be getting significant midfield minutes. But what he's been able to do at Carlton and consistently do, consistently get that 20, 25 disposals a game, support Paddy Cripps, and really be a solid contributor. I can't see how he doesn't win it based off his first 15 rounds. And then moving forward, as long as he continues on that path and, you know, Connor Rosie or Blakey or Sydney Sack doesn't explode, I think he wins it by the length of Flemington straight. And you'd be crazy not to give it to him. I think there's nobody that's done as much as, as Sam Walsh has done. But the thing that annoys me about this conversation is that inevitably the comment comes, who would you rather have? And that's not the question. It's not who would you rather have. It's not who's going to have a better career. It's not who, how would you redraft the 2018 draft. None of that is relevant. It's who's had the best 2019, and that's it. None of that other conversation matters. And the reason I say that is because they were talking about Daniel Rich in the year he won it, and I think I'm going to, I might be wrong here, but I think it was the same year as Dustin Martin. And Andy Marr said on SEN, oh, it would have been, looking back on that, it probably would have made more sense for Dustin Martin to win it. And it's rubbish. They voted at the time that Daniel Rich had a better year than Dustin Martin in his first year. And it's not about resumes, and it's not about fantasy football, or any of these other lenses you put over it. The question is, who's had a better 2018, uh, 2019? And that's it. And it drives me nuts when people start all of these other conversations around the rising star. So when round 23 comes to a close, yes, you may redraft Connor Rosie ahead of Sam Walsh or Nick Blakey or anybody else and may look better redrafted with whoever you want to put in first position. But as it stands right now, Sam Walsh, deserves a rising star if it stopped today and if he continues along the same vein of form that he's had in these first 15 games he absolutely will deserve it at round 23 the next one the next topic is a favorite of every afl fan because we love the controversy that gets thrown up by michael christian the mro and the tribunal now, I don't know if you know this, and I, until somebody said it on the radio the other day, I, was, I hadn't really been paying attention, but every case that's gone to the tribunal, as in every player that's either gone to or taken their case to the tribunal, has won. So every player that's taken their case to the tribunal has won. But the issue that I have at the moment with the MRO is there was a big, big piece of big, big article, big release, big talk from Michael Christian and Steve Hocking and Gil McLaughlin, but mainly out of Michael Christian, about how they were going to punish the action. So the punch, the headbutt, 
the stomp, the pinch. But as it stands right now, Michael Walters is a great example. That was a headbutt. And he went to the tribunal. He got off. The thing that annoys me the most is that it's not about force. And especially when you look at when you look at some of those incidents as some of the ones that have been uh, they've been players have managed to get off, they're they're the ones that actually look the worst. They're the ones that are, you know, the punch, this jumper punch, which I thought we were trying to eliminate. They're the one the two that have actually been punished that actually have a really bad look for the game are Ben Stratton and the pinching and the stomping. Now both of those arguably are both extremely low impact the stomp isn't you know Sean McKernan what he didn't come off the ground Orazio Fantasia could still use his left arm but it was the look that they were punishing it was that is not the brand and the values that the AFL want to be associated with so why is Michael Walters headbutt any different and there are a couple of cases and I, I don't have them in front of me right now but there's one that we were talking about earlier this week there's been a few over the last probably month of football where the action hasn't been punished. And that's what, as parents and as parents to Oz kickers and young football players, that's what they see. The AFL is the governing body, the voice, and the arbitrator of all of football in Australia. So when they let, when they punish, they don't punish things and they do punish things. And when they let cases like that and actions and behaviors like, the punching or the swinging arm, when they let those things go, they're basically saying, "Ah, you know, the actions are a little questionable, but he didn't hit him or the contact was was not sufficient to warrant a report. That is bullshit. (laughs) It's absolute bullshit, especially when you come out and say you're going to punish the action. The intent to injure, I think, is what they said prior to round one. But now, no, we're backtracking off that. And that's part of a broader issue that the AFL have around consistency, around messaging and communication. Now, all of this could be knocked on the head and the umpiring and the bloody VAR is a whole nother conversation for that as well. But this, uh, the rigidity and the, the nature of the AFL is to fall in behind the messaging, to basically back the decisions that have been made and say, Yep, I am, we are 100% behind the VAR. You know, I don't think Adam... Who was that? Adam, Adam Kennedy? I don't think he touched the football. There's just so much inconsistency and it's almost like it's bold-faced lying. We all know what's going on behind closed doors. Come on, let's be real. But anyway, big issue around the culture of miscommunication. Just come out on a Monday... You know how much more respect people would have for the AFL, for Michael Christian and for Steve Hocking and for Gil McLaughlin? They came out on a Monday and said, we made a mistake. I think people would be blown away. I think they wouldn't know how to react. Everybody makes mistakes. We all do. But if you judge the AFL on 12 months of of football and the hundreds of games that are being played, you wouldn't think they made a mistake. Every decision gets ticked off. There's no communication. There's no... We got that one wrong. Everybody makes mistakes and nothing builds engagement and trust better than when you own up to mistakes and you rectify them. Anyway, that 
let's move on. That rant's over. Done. Next thing, interim coaches. So John Longmire had a little bit, of, a little bit of a slip of the tongue, and uh, he ended up saying that he was contracted to North Melbourne instead of Sydney, which he is actually contracted to. But all of that aside, it sounds as the days go by and he doesn't confirm, it certainly sounds as though he's going to end up at North Melbourne. It's got that feeling to it, doesn't it? It feels like that to me anyway. But the interesting the, well, the interesting thing at the end of the year is going to be how well did David Teague and Reese Shaw play out this, this next eight weeks, eight, nine weeks, how well do they go through that period? And especially from David Teague's perspective, if he wins one, two more games and they don't get annihilated, he might end up in that coach's chair. And same for Reece Shaw. He may, depending on how they go, they may decide, roll the dice. But if they can get John Longmire, I think regardless of how good Reece Shaw goes, if John Longmire's on the table, they'll certainly throw their checkbook at him and this godfather offer, whatever that means, godfather offer, give him an offer he can't refuse. Uh, anyway, that offer comes to John Longmire. Yeah, maybe he goes back, but he's played or he's coached more years at Sydney than he played with at North Melbourne. I think it was 10 versus 12. But anyway, I think that's going to be a really interesting scenario come the end of the year, especially if David Teague and Reece Shaw put some pressure on their respective clubs by putting in some pretty reasonable performances. Because, I, look, I've never, I've never been inside an AFL football club, but those positions in coaching and leadership aren't really that... I can't imagine that they're massively different. So if he's got the respect and trust and admiration of his players and they see and understand the direction, or both of them, sure, and Teague, then it's hard to rip that out and start again. Because these guys, and again... Any profession, when you get a new manager in, you're always going to try and push yourself. You want to be seen in a good light, perform well, work harder. And that's the honeymoon period that, that always happens with, generally, with interim coaches. You're getting that lift in effort that you didn't get when Brendan Bolton and Brad Scott were there because there wasn't that, there wasn't, uh, complacency is probably not the right word, but you get that boost when you've got, something else to potentially play for which is your your livelihood and you probably weren't as motivated a week ago but anyway that's going to be an interesting interesting two interesting stories to play out over the next eight weeks and see where the respective coaches land anyway that's it for the news we will or i will be back to talk to all 17 of you about Supercoach and what we need to do for this week. God, it looks scary. Max, Danger, Caleb Daniel, Cripps potentially still. I'm scared. Anyway, I'll be back with Supercoach.